0: Chapter seven of Through Glacier Park Seeing America First with Howard Eaton by Mary Roberts Reinhart This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter seven THE BLACK Marks The visit to the Executive Department of the Park was disappointing. I found the superintendent's office in a two room frame shack, the government warehouse an old barn, five miles from a railroad too. That's management for you. Why, old gentlemen at Washington who arranged these things, why not at Belton, on the railroad, five miles away? The park extends to Belton. Inadequate appropriations, the necessity for putting the entire heavy machinery of the government in motion for the long-distance control of the park, poor automobile roads, and insufficient rangers—these are the black marks against us in Glacier Park. On every hand, the enthusiasm of a most efficient superintendent must contend with these things. That marvels of trail-making and road-building in this vast domain have been done with so little money and encouragement is due primarily to the faith the men closely connected with the park have had in its future. Doubtless all these things will remedy themselves in time, but they make the immediate problems of the park difficult to cope with the chief ranger must live where he can. No building erected by the superintendent must cost over $1,000. It is not easy in that country of cheap wood and dear labor to build a house of $1,000. And there is always the difficulty of long-distance supervision. In 1914, the former superintendent of national parks, Mr. Daniels, spent a week in Glacier Park. Last year he was at the entrance, Glacier Park Station, for half a day, and not in the park at all. There are several parks, and it is easy to believe that Mr. Daniels found it difficult to visit them all. But the method must be wrong. It is Washington that must order and pay for each bit of new trail and road building. If Washington does not come to the park, the park cannot go to Washington. THERE IS SOMETHING LACKING IN EFFICIENCY IN A SYSTEM WHICH DEPENDS ON ACROSS-THE-CONTINENT SUPERVISION. THIS YEAR I HOPE THE SUPERINTENDENT OF NATIONAL PARKS WILL GO OUT TO GLACIER PARK, NOT BY AUTOMOBILE, BUT ON A HORSE, AND RIDE OVER HIS GREAT DOMAIN. THEN I HOPE HE WILL GO BACK TO WASHINGTON AND ARRANGE FOR ENOUGH RANGERS TO MAKE THE PARK SAFE AND TO SAVE ITS TIMBER FROM FOREST FIRES. YELLOWSTONE PARK HAS SOLDIERS. It is not soldiers but woodsmen, trail riders, rangers that are needed. Canada in this same country has her northwest mounted police. They want real men out there. But the mountains take care of that. The weaklings don't stick. From just north of Glacier Park went a band of twenty five cavalrymen that I met last year in Flanders. They were rangers, mountain riders. For weeks during the German invasion, they rode on skirmish duty between the advancing Germans and the retiring armies. They became famous. Where there were reckless courage and fine horsemanship needed, those men were sent. If we ever have a war, we shall draw hard on the West for cavalry. Our national parks should be able to send out trained skirmishers. Under present conditions, Glacier Park could furnish about a dozen. And now that we are criticizing— everyone may criticize the government, it is the English blood in us. Why is it that with the most poetic nomenclature in the world, the Indian, one by one the historic names of the peaks, lakes, and rivers of Glacier Park, are being replaced by the names of obscure government officials, professors in small universities, unimportant people who go out there to the West and memorialize themselves on government maps? Each year see some new absurdity, What names in the world are more beautiful than going to the sun and rising wolf? Here are almost a dog mountain, two medicine lake, red eagle, a few that have survived. Every peak, every butte, every river and lake of this country has been named by the Indians. The names are beautiful and romantic. To preserve them in a government reservation is almost the only way of preserving them at all. What has happened? Look over the map of Glacier Park. The Indian names have been done away with. Majestic Peaks, Towering Buttes are being given names like this. Haystack Butte, Trapper Peak, Huckleberry Mountain, The Guard House, The Garden Wall. One of the most wonderful things in the Rocky Mountains is this garden wall. I wish I knew what the Indians called it. Then there are Iceberg Lake, Florence Falls, Twin Lakes, Gunsight Mountain, Split Mountain, Surprise Pass, Peril Peak. That last was a dandy, alliterative. Church Butte, Statuary Mountain, Buttercup Park. Can you imagine the inspiration of the man who found some flowery meadow between granite crags and took away from it its Indian name and called it Buttercup Park? The Blackfeet are the aristocrats among American Indians— they were the buffalo hunters, and this great region was once theirs. To the mountains and lakes of what is now Glacier Park they attached their legends, which are their literature. The white man came, and not content with eliminating the Indians, he went further and wiped out their history. Any government official, if he so desires, any white man seeking perpetuation on the map of his country— may fasten his name to a mountain and go down in the school geographies. It has been done again and again. It is being done now. And the lover of the old names stands helpless and aghast. Is there no way to stop this vandalism? Year after year goes by, and just as the people connected with the park are beginning to learn new names for the peaks, they are again rechristened. There must be seven goat mountains." Here and there is a peak, like Reynolds Peak, or Grinnell Mountain, and some others properly named for men intimately associated with the region. But Reynolds's Indian name was Death on the Trail. When you have seen the mountain, you can well believe that Death on the Trail would fit it well. There are many others. Take an old peak that the Indians have known as Old Man of the Winds, or Red Top Plume, and call it Mount Thompson, or Mount Morgan, or Mount Pinchot, or Mount Oberlin, for Oberlin College, presumably, or Mount Pollock, after the Wheeling Stogie, I suppose. There is hardly a name in the telephone directory that is not fastened to some wonderful peak in this garden spot of ours. Not very long ago I got a letter, a pathetic letter, It said that a college professor from an eastern college had been out there this summer and insisted that one of the peaks be named for him and one for his daughter. It was done. Here, then, the government has done a splendid thing, and done it none too well. It has preserved for the people of the United States and for all the world a scenic spot so beautiful and so impressive that I have not even attempted to describe it. It is not possible— it has failed to open up the park properly. It has been niggardly in appropriation. It has allowed its geographers to take away the original Indian names of this home of the Blackfeet, and so destroy the last trace of a vanishing race. Were it not for the Great Northern Railway, travel through Glacier Park would be practically impossible. Probably the Great Northern was not entirely altruistic." and yet I believe that Mr. Lewis Warren Hill, known always as Louis Hill, has had an ideal and followed it, followed it with an enthusiasm that is contagious, and with an inspiring faith. The Great Northern has built huge hotels in three places, and at a dozen other locations has built groups of log houses, Swiss fashion, so that it is possible to follow the trails by day, and to be comfortably housed and fed each night. These hotels, built by the Great Northern, are now owned and controlled by the Glacier Park Hotel Company. At the entrance to the park is the Glacier Park Hotel that cost half a million dollars and is almost as large as the national capital at Washington. Like all the hotels and chalets in the park, it is constructed largely of the huge trunks of the trees of the Northwest. The Indians call the Glacier Park Hotel the Great Log Lodge, there is everything from a store to a swimming pool. Fifty miles away in the very heart of the park, there is the new Mini Glaciers Hotel. It also cost a half million dollars. There is an automobile road leading to Many Glaciers. The chalet system, also built by the Great Northern, has done more than anything else to make the park possible for tourists. Automobile roads and trails alike touch the chalets, and although I am firm in my conviction that it is impossible to see the park properly from an automobile, I realize that there are many who will not take the more arduous and sportsmanly method for them. Then a short trip of twelve or fifteen miles each day takes them from Chalet to Chalet. There are chalets at Two Medicine Lake at Cutbank Canyon at Going to the Sun at St Mary's Lake at Gunsight Pass, at the Sperry Glacier at Granite Park and at Belton. There are inclusive and very moderate rates for various tours to take up a certain number of days. A saddle horse costs two dollars a day, a pack horse two dollars a day, a guide who will furnish his own horse and board himself five dollars a day. There are rates from chalet to chalet, including a night's lodging in comfortable beds, morning breakfast, evening dinner, and a carefully packed luncheon that are astonishingly cheap. For those who wish to go even more simply, there are the teepee camps. There are three of these, at St. Mary's, Going to the Sun, and Many Glaciers. They comprise a number of Indian teepees grouped about a central cabin, which includes a kitchen provided with a range and cooking utensils. The teepees themselves are wooden-floored, and each is equipped with two cot beds and bedding. At all of the teepee camps, the charge for lodging is fifty cents per bed, per night. The use of the range in cooking utensils is free. At the chalets nearby, hikers may purchase food at very reasonable prices. It is, you see, possible to go through Glacier Park without Howard Eaton. It is even safe, and to those who have never known Howard, highly satisfactory. But there will be something missing that curious thing called personality, which could take forty-two entirely different, blasé, feeble-muscled, uncertain, and defeat Easterners, and mold them in a few days into a homogeneous whole, that took excursionists and made them philosophers and sportsmen. He was hunting in Arizona later on, the party ate venison, duck, and mountain lion, which taste like veal. "'We have had several fights with grizzlies,' he wrote." They are so strong that they have whipped the hounds and carved them up some in each fight. Country pretty rough, and considerable fallen timber, which delays us. I was kicked the other day by a horse when almost up to a bear. The boys thought I had a broken leg or two, so they let the bear escape. He was sending a rider off to the nearest post office, and wondering what was doing in the war. "'Has Port Arthur fallen yet?' he inquired whimsically. A hunter who puts the greenest, tenderfoot at ease, and teaches him without apparently teaching at all. A host whose first thought is always for his guests. A calm-faced man with twinkling blue eyes, who is proud of his boys and his friends all over the world. That is Howard Eaton as nearly as he can be put on paper. Wherever he is when he reads this, hunting in Arizona, or the Jackson Hole Country, or snowed in at the ranch at Wolf. I hope he will forgive me for putting him into print, in memory of those days when the entire forty-two of us followed him, like the tail of a kite, across the great divide. End of chapter 7